Hi, it's Jason with a brief preamble to this week's episode. In the episode, you're going to hear the making of story of how in 1997, two totally unqualified first time documentary filmmakers went from a pipe dream born of desperation to seeing their very first effort, a documentary about the singer and songwriter Bobby Darren, premiere on PBS stations across the country. These guys had a crazy series of totally unlikely occurrences pave their way. And the story involves Bill Clinton, Senator John Warner, Dick Clark, at least two Bobby Darren impersonators, an allegedly murderous psychiatrist, and opium suppositories. And although it's ultimately a funny and happy story of success and personal growth, it's got more than a few dark corners that we peer around in this episode. It's a story of hopeful kids, really, looking for male role models and finding out some difficult lessons regarding toxic workplaces, charismatic sociopaths, personal responsibilities, and the survival raft of excessive drinking as a coping mechanism, springing a leak against the sharp rocks of reality versus expectations. All that and other belabored metaphors. The filmmakers in question, two 28-year-old friends, were Henry Astor, a Brit then working for the BBC in England, and me, Jason Silo, your host. Except today, I'm not your host. I'm a guest. Here we go. Welcome back to the Full Casting Crew Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo, except this week, I'm not actually your host. I'm going to be a guest. And Rick Brown, my frequent guest on the pod, is going to be your host. Take it away, Rick. Okay. Well, thanks for this opportunity, Jason. This week, you are on the other side of the mic. You're the guest. And we have another guest with us, too, Henry Astor. Hello, Henry. Welcome, Henry. Hey, Rick. Hey, Jason. Good to see you. I'm going to be talking with these two gentlemen today about a documentary they co-produced, co-directed, 1998 uh, documentary titled Bobby Darren Beyond the Song. Uh, and we're not going to be talking about the content of the documentary so much as the creation of the documentary. Call it Behind Beyond the Song. I'll mention here and at the end that the documentary on the fascinating life of the American pop singer, actor, activist Bobby Darren is available uh, on DVD. And you guys don't get royalties on this film, right? <laughs> As you'll see, Rick. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay. Well, in that case, it's also streaming for free on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> not that we encourage anyone to... Uh break the law or anything. Exactly. Well, let's get into it. Jason, why don't you set it up for us? 1998. Where were you professionally at that time? And tell us about the circumstances that led into making a documentary about Bobby Darren. Well, I mean, it really starts long before that. And I think, and this is why I'm glad to have Henry here and you to correct part of what is probably my completely faulty memory for reasons that we'll get into as we talk about the making of this documentary. But I think in my origin story it begins with you, Rick, in college, we all went to college together at Hampshire College. 
between the years 1988, 1992, 1993, somewhere in there. I always have in my mind that it was you, Rick, who were into Bobby Darren at the time and sort of talked it up to Henry and I. And either at that time, someone, I'm pretty sure it wasn't me, but someone said that would be a great idea for documentary. Or again, my memory is after graduating college, spending a couple of years back in New Haven, I moved to New York City, started working in the television business, tried two different things that really weren't a fit. And that Henry similarly had done a couple of things after Hampshire College, I think including getting a advanced degree in documentary filmmaking or ethnographic filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I believe it was Henry who reintroduced this concept of, hey, we should do that Bobby Darren thing and either moved to New York or then moved to New York after we got the opportunity to do it. And that at that point, we approached you, Rick, who was also living in New York City to say, hey, we want to try and do this. And that for your reasons, you passed. And Henry and I ended up using a contact of ours to get a meeting, which we'll get into later, which set this whole thing in motion. That's how I remember, but I'd be very curious to hear how Henry remembers it. This is how I remember it. I remember being in uh, Rick's room at college and <laughs> which that wouldn't really have happened. I mean, you know, we weren't hanging out, <laughs> right, Rick? <laughs> you guys are in different social milieus. <laughs> social milieu. And I remember pulling out a, uh, out of your record collection or whatever, a Bobby Darren album. I can't remember which one it was going, I love Bobby Darren. And you being very surprised that I would love Bobby Darren. And my parents had had Bobby Darren albums and, and, and I'd stolen my parents' record collection. And I'd listened to a lot of Bobby Darren. And, and I remember you sort of quizzing me on Bobby Darren. I remember knowing nothing about him and you telling me about his life and, 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 and thinking, my God, that's what, what an interesting, um, yeah, what an interesting life. And so that's that's my my recollection of it. But as you say, it might be slightly improbable, the idea of me being in 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 even in your mod in your apartment, let alone the, the room in it, is is improbable. But that's how I remember it. Well, um, let's just let's just make that the real story. Okay. Well, Henry, what do you remember of the reignition of it? Because I think of that as you're you sort of either calling me or I don't think you yeah. lived in New York before we did this. Is that right? Do I have that part no, right? So so I was living in, I had, um, I'd done a master's degree in visual anthropology. Right. And I, on the back of that, I got a job at the BBC as a researcher. And this is all sort of, and I was also doing a, a claymation animation with a friend right. of ours, Alex Ryan. God, that's brilliant. Um, yes. And that, that claymation got into some film festivals, including the short film, whatever film festival in New York. She at the time, you know, we were kind of our relationship was rocky. And I think during that visit to this festival, you I was staying with you, Jason, you and I were hanging out. And I realized actually that New York was quite fun and <laughs> um, <laughs> and that you were quite fun and we <laughs> this could be fun. So anyway, I think I've just moved. I think I just up, up and moved and said, you know what, because. Alex moved back to Maine. She was actually pregnant with George at the time. Right. My okay. son. We were breaking up. The whole thing was horrendous in some respects. 
So you did a geographic, basically. Um, I did a ge- I did a geographic, <laughs> and I ended up in this tiny little apartment with you on on Twelfth Street and Avenue A. Yes. Um, and you know there was sort of no looking back at that. I think, and um, you were working for Keith Olbermann at the time. I think was that right? I was. Yeah, I was at MSNBC, and if you moved in, then I must have. I must have lived. I had a, I had a roommate for a while. That's how I got that apartment. And my roommate must have moved out. Maybe I lived on my own, and that's why I had a room that you moved into. I don't really remember this. Um, and it's funny in retrospect. And part of the reason why I approached both of you about doing this is I've just been interested in the memory of how things originate and how, in fact, I read a lot of books about the making of films. I read a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts about the making of things. And people always pretend that they remember these exact specific conversations and moments. And I think the reality is like, I have no fucking memory of exactly when Henry said this thing or me saying, yes, let's do that. I don't even remember the specifics of that happening, but it did happen. I remember the circumstances that fell into place after that. I do remember that it must have been, um, if the, Rick, the film came out in 98. Is that uh, right? Yeah. Okay, so I think that the making of this probably began maybe in somewhere around 96 or 97 because full full 96. Yeah. Okay, full 96, fall of 96. Yeah. Um, So I think at that point, I had worked at MSNBC almost after it started up. And uh, Rick and I just did the film broadcast news on the podcast. And Rick, as we discussed there, you know, however long I was there, a year or so, it was enough to realize I was not a news person. I did not get off on the daily thrill of Monica Lewinsky leaving her apartment and you have to come into work on Saturday morning to cut 20 seconds of tape that someone could talk over. Like that was the job. That was the breaking news job. And I was just so not into that. So I was probably restless uh, and looking for something. And then Henry is always a very good idea person. And he must have just caught me right at a moment where with a combination of contacts that we had, because the reason I had the job I had then was because of a, a childhood friend's father, Jonathan Hayes, who is super influential and utterly important in, in the career I ended up having. He got me my first job in TV before the MSNBC job. And he would be the one that set up the meeting that Henry and I would go to that landed this. So, But it was a crazy, it was, you were living a crazy life because you're working you know, as you do in New York, you were working 100 hours a week doing this as a kind of PA. I mean, you were, you're an associate producer. I mean, yes, it, as a dog's body, basically, to Keith Oldman. It, it's, and we, you would get back at 10. I would be ready to go, you know. <laughs> and I was like, you know, and we would get down a couple of beers. We would be out of the, that wood bar that was... Go to the wood bar, yeah. We could get to that, but um, that you could see <laughs> out of the back of our bathroom, you could see into the bar, so... You could see how busy it was, or if there was somebody you'd offended the night before, you didn't you didn't want to go in there. And and then we would probably be out until I, you know, two or God three. Knows. And then you would you would get up and I remember you had to take a bus. Yeah, they bust us from they bust you. Yeah, they and bust us. You, yeah. You, but you're also trying to at the same time, we're trying to get this documentary off the ground. And we, mm-hmm. you know, we're really serious about it at this point. And you're so you were sort of, it was insane. It was absolutely bonkers, you know, for you. Well, also um, at that time, this was again at the time of the Clinton Lewinsky scandal when I was working at MSNBC. So in addition to those normal, normally the show was live at eight o'clock at night and at nine fifteen, I'd be on the bus from, you know, Fort Lee, New Jersey, heading back to New York city 
to arrive at 10 o'clock, like Henry is saying. But at the height of that moment of scandal, we were also live at 10 and midnight. And when we were live at midnight, we all had what we even called then within the staff of the big show with Keith Olbermann, alcoholic hours, because you basically didn't have to come into work until four or five in the four or five in the afternoon. You prepped. There's no real prep for the show because all we were doing is the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. So guests, all this kind of like the same pool of guests, like it's just talking about what's going on for the day. So it wasn't like you had to get in at nine to get a show together for eight, which you normally did. You could roll in at four or five. Show was live at eight. Show was live at 10. Show was live at midnight. So at 12 at, at 1 15 a.m., they had a fleet of town cars. This is the glory days of TV news. There's a fleet of town cars waiting in Fort Lee. Everybody on the staff had their own town car because everybody ostensibly is going home. Of course, what everyone did was agree where we were going. So you'd hit a bar in New York City at two in the morning and you could stay out until the sun came up, get into whatever shenanigans and adventures there were to get into, go home, the worst feeling in the world, walking home when normal people are walking their dogs and running and, and, you know, carrying cups of coffee and, you know, you are stumbling home, crash, sleep, wake up, have a shower, go get the shuttle bus and go back to Fort Lee. That was the life, which was a hell of a lot of fun, but was ultimately incredibly difficult to sustain. So it must've been at that time. And Henry, I think, I don't know whether to say uncharacteristically or characteristically, I think we did a lot of work to get this pitch together is my recollection. We yeah, did a hell of a lot, but, but interestingly, it was oh, driven. Let's, let's not step on Rick's uh, questions here. I think we're jumping ahead. Sorry. Rick. Oh, no, I was. Um, I want to give you guys a chance to uh, have a conversation too, but I was going to ask you to sort of, you know, moving into uh, the actual documentary project here, which is, um, you know, that uh, when you're, you guys were both about, 30 years old at the time. Um, and I'm thinking about um, when an idea comes from, you know, moves from, Hey, let's do this to, Hey, let's actually do this. <laughs> and I was going to ask Henry, if you remembered uh, the actual, the first pitch meeting that you guys had at WNET and getting ready for that. Uh, there were two sort of seminal moments. One is getting in a car with you and Jason in an Avis rental car on the east side to go down to Cherry Hill. What was it? Uh, Algier to go and see this guy, Al Giordano. Oh, Al Diorio. Al, Al Diorio, yeah. Sorry. Oh my God, I totally forgot about this. Al Diorio. Because at this time, at this point, Rick, you know, um, you were the guy driving the story. You you had the kind of you had this sort of in-depth detail, as far as I was concerned, about Bobby Darren. So wait, was Rick working with us at this time on yeah, the... Yeah, oh, he okay. was. He, okay, yeah. I, I forgot yeah, he that. Was, he was definitely, and he was it was the three of us, as I understood it. It might, and I think after that meeting with Al Diorio, and that was, to me, a sort of a real, you know, we had met a guy who'd written a book about him, who was a huge fan, who, you know, who really set us on on the path to sort of, um, of this, giving us the story, I think at that point Rick decided to step away. That's my understanding. And soon after, through your friend Jonathan Hayes, we got a meeting with um, Bill Baker, the president of WNET. <laughs> and as I understand it, and I've told this story so many times, so it's probably not <laughs> true. 
when we walked in there, Bill Baker said something to the effect of, where the fuck have you guys been for 25 years? Bobby Darren was the first guy I ever interviewed as a Cub Scout. <laughs> and he just went off for an hour talking about himself. And we were kind of sitting there going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, <laughs> and then he goes, so, you know, what? how are we going to make this? I can't quite remember, but I mean, that was kind of uh, it. That, that, that is exactly what happened. His exact words were, and I told Rick this in, in sort of preparation that, Again, characteristically or uncharacteristically, because a lot of this is 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 about, I think, the naivete of not really understanding all of the impediments that really are in your way when you are young and you sort of have a creative idea and you're just two guys going forward and you're not really paying attention to all of the stop signs that might be there or the reasons why it might not work. But I do remember that being so prepared that we that Henry and I worked out literally line by line who was going to say what in a pitch like. Okay, so I'm going to start by sort of introducing ourselves and then you're going to say this and then I'm going to say this and, and like we had it all scripted out. And I think we got through one line before Bill Baker interrupted and I and this is his exact quote was, hey, let me stop you there. I've been waiting 25 years for two young guys to walk into my office and pitch me a Bobby Darren documentary. We're going to do it. And then he went into his hour long right. self involved okay. discussion about his own experiences with Bobby Darren, which is ironic given what would happen later on in some of the interviews. But didn't um, he have a, I, cassette, he had a, a, he had a cassette, cassette tape? He had his secretary. Do you remember this, Henry? He had his secretary bring in an audio cassette of his interview as a yes. cub reporter with Bobby Darren from yes. 1956 or something yeah. and played that for us. Yeah, um, that was that was amazing. Um, you know, th that was yeah. Yeah, I do. But remember before that, that I want to know, Rick, when Okay, so I remember, I, I didn't remember at all the Al DiOrio thing. Didn't, I mean, I remembered Al and he's a great interview, wrote a great, probably still the best book about Bobby Darren, if it's hopefully still in print. Um, but Rick, what's your memory of sort of being involved in a, in a process? Did you drop out sort of, you must've dropped out before the Bill Baker meeting because you weren't there. Uh, did you sort of, were you in a place where you're just like, look, I got my life, I'm working my two jobs. I don't really want to stop down and do this thing. And I'm cool with you guys. Or was it fraught with something like, I can't tell me, Henry. yeah. What was the story? <laughs> like, do we, owe, do we owe you an apology? Did we kick you off the project? What, what happened? No, not at all. What you're, what you guys are uh, not remembering is that as you two were sort of like trying to get serious about taking on this project. I was serious about moving out of New York City. Oh. Um, and what I didn't really fully realize at the time, and I want to go too deep into my own, uh, you know, my own boring biography was that I was just really depressed oh. uh, at that time and seeking to go find some authentic life somewhere else. Uh what I, I really see. needed was what I probably needed was, you know, Lexapro or something. <laughs> um, and maybe I could have hung around for longer. But even the uh, the great um, the great meeting with Al Diorio, where we went to that town home. He was this very uh, sweet middle aged guy living there with his mom. Mm -hmm, and yeah. they put out this uh, spread of uh, yes, you know, uh, yes. cookies. And now yeah. I remember. It was, it was a very a, dainty affair. But, cookies. Yeah, it was a very sort of like not stuffy, but careful affair. Yeah. And uh, we talked to the guy for two or three hours. It was awesome. Yeah. Do you remember either of you, Henry, did through Al, because Al had all the contacts. He had written the book. Is it through Al that we got 
Dodd Darren, who is the son of Bobby Darren and Sandra no. D. We'll talk a little bit about that sort of no. relationship. But did Harriet we get that? Wasserman. Harriet. He introduced us to Harriet. Okay. And Harriet, and Harriet introduced us to Dodd? No. Um, we got to go to L.A. to get there. Well, who's Harriet do- Wasserman? Harriet. Is it Wasserman? What was the name? Yeah, Harriet, Harriet Wasserman. Yeah. She was, she was Bobby's Bobby. assistant or something? Assistant, secretary, wasn't oh, she? Okay. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, of course. I mean, and she was another sweetheart of a person yeah. who who really um she really loved and like idolized Bobby, was a confidant, kind of knew the truth. You know, I think when you start interviewing people about people like this, you have people who give you sort of the showbiz answers. But people like Al, Al's a little bit more polished because he had written the book, so he sort of had his sort of thing. But Harriet, of all the people, I don't know if she really made it into the film very much, if at all. No, she wasn't a good interview. We, she came in to MPI uh, offices mm-hmm. to do the interview, but she was, we good. tried to use her. She was just wasn't a good interview. Yeah, but no. she was a great person. So I can't yeah. remember if we approached Dodd before we went to Bill Baker or after. I don't know if you no, remember. We had that, no idea. We had no idea about this thing about the estate and oh, all, okay. this, all this stuff. We because I remember sitting with um, <clears throat> Bill later on. He goes, "Well, so what about the estate? What about the the rights to?" And we were. I remember you mean thinking, Bill, Bill Baker or Bill Marty. Bill Marty, like okay. we were going like, well, what are you talking about? And 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 we got through, as I remember, I mean, we're kind of jumping here. So do you want to stay on this? Or yeah, do you let, want yeah let, let's not let's not jump. But I, I was just curious. I didn't yeah. know if we had done more than no. talk with Al and say, we'd like to do a documentary and then sort of work up our pitch, go to Bill Baker and just assumed well, we'll figure out how to do it after the fact, or like, I don't even know what I was trying to remember. We didn't, we didn't what did know. we think? Like, did we think we were going to make it? I do we, remember a little bit like Bill being like, and I can't remember if we had another meeting with Bill Baker or just that one funny meeting. Um, but at some point, Bill Baker informed Henry and I, and it may have been in this very first meeting, maybe you remember Henry, that yeah. we were going to do it working with a production company that already did a lot of documentaries yeah. like this for PBS. Yeah. And I don't remember my reaction to that. I don't know if you remember your reaction to that. Were we cool with that? Or we were like, what? Uh, we we want to do I this. I was like, holy shit, is this actually happening? I mean, okay, this so was you, like, were, you weren't upset at the concept of working with, uh, with this production company. Not at all. I was, th- okay. I was thinking, oh my God, you know, this guy's serious and we're going to move forward with this. And he, he actually said, I've got a couple of production companies in mind. I always think about this because you know, it was 50, 50 at that point. And I'm just thinking it should have <laughs> what, gone the other way. The other one. Did we ever, Where would, the other would one? I be milling, would I be milling flour right now? But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, uh, but anyway, it was that one. And, and that's, we'll get into did that. We, but, did we, did we meet another production company or did we just meet with, with the MPI guys? No, we just met with that, but I want to say two, two things okay. to, in, in our sort of, uh, that I think were really important. One is going back to your point of naivety. We had no idea about things like master rights or, you know, um, licensing, or we were just wanting to make a film about Bobby Darren. That, that we had no concept of, of getting the estate involved. The other thing we'd done is we put together this unbelievable production book. It was this thick and it had every single song, every bit note. It, it would have tabs about interviews, who we were going to interview, the biographies, the people we we're going to interview. We can't have, film. we can't have been that, t- we can't have had our shit that together. Really? We had our shit together. I swear to God, it was, it was impressive. And in fact, I think that's the thing that sold 
Bob Marty when we went wow. there. We had this production book that was literally here is the film. Here is or here are all the songs we I need. have no memory of working on that. Maybe you guys did that. Um you you were very um instrumental in that. Uh, really? Yeah. I have no memory of that whatsoever. Because I didn't because oh I'm not, God. you know, you work in TV. I the, the idea of yeah. me, I didn't know what a production book really was. I mean, I worked for the BBC a little bit, but um so anyway, we put that together and I think that was a real whether we showed that to Bill Baker, but it was a it was kind of like a we're fucking serious about this. Here's the story. We know what we're talking about. We know what we're doing. And I think that sort of gave Bill Baker, this is my interpretation, the mm. confidence, or and Bill Marty, the confidence say, Bob Marty, you know, um, yeah. these guys actually, they know what they're doing. It's not just an idea. They've really busted their balls to get get the right. thing in place. So you guys get the green light from WNET, and then they set you up with this uh, production company in New York. Mm -hmm. um and i was curious what you were you were talking a little bit henry about um you know whether whether or not the project was sort of being hijacked or did you feel like thank god there's uh we're going to be assigned to work under some grown-ups here or you know what was tell me a little bit more about going over to work with the production company sort of your initial feelings about it and then how it went from there well, let me tell you, so first of all, my first thought was, shit, I don't have a visa. I'm still on a tourist visa. <laughs> I am oh, illegal that's right. That's right. in this country. Now, it so happens oh, yeah. that my next door neighbor here in England is from Little Rock, Arkansas. And, oh, my God, I totally forgot this. And back in the day when Bill Clinton was a governor, um, they must have contributed <laughs> some money to the Clintons <laughs> or whatever it was anyway. I got given, this is, this is why I love America, it's, it's such a beautiful, there's a third world element to it, but um, I got given a fax number and I was told to fax a copy of my passport to this fax number and it, this fax number would only be on this day, so you couldn't use it any other days, it was to Hillary Clinton's office. Oh um, my God. And I faxed it and three weeks later, my um, H-1B visa. That's right. Uh, arrived and you know what's would, so funny we owe this entire project to bill clinton if bill yeah. clinton hadn't had the peccadillos that he had i wouldn't have been so irritated working at msnbc and henry would never have gotten an h1b visa which allowed yeah. him to work on this film because you're right now i totally remember yeah. and in fact i think in the process of putting this together you had to leave and come back a couple of times i don't know how long the tourist thing was but the other thing is um Senator Warner was involved in this, and I can't quite remember how, but I remember having a conversation with him. Oh, my God. Because I went to the Bahamas for a holiday, uh, and they wouldn't let me back in. That's right. Oh, my God, yes. Visa, yes. So I had Clinton, and I had Senator... What's his name? What the hell is that guy? Was it Schumer? No, Warner. He was called... Um, John Warner from Virginia? John Warner. And, uh, and, he, and I remember him calling me up in the offices going, this is outrageous. God damn it. What what has this country come to that an Asta can't get back into New York City? And I'm gonna bring this up with the Senate committee of blah 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 and da 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 da. And I was like, all right, well, thank you, Senator. That's very kind of you. And anyway, between him and Clinton, I got my um, my visa. But hey, you know that's how we roll back then. You know, well, <laughs> I, voting matters. To, to answer the question a little bit, Rick, very very crucial to what I now know about myself that I didn't then was I have always my whole life, you know, I didn't grow up with my father. I didn't have male 
trustworthy male authority figures that I could learn from in my life. And I realize now that when we walked into this production company, I can remember very vividly exactly walking down the hallway and seeing uh, there was a production company called MPI. It was run by two brothers, Bob Marty and Bill Marty. And Bob Marty was sort of the creative guy. And Bill Marty was the guy who made all the trains run on time. And, and Bob Marty was immediately to me, visually someone I hoped would be this type of mentor and real and, and father figure, I have to say, cause he's probably wasn't old enough to be our father, but close enough. You know, he had been around in New York in the 80s. He had cool stories about, you know, about the type of nightlife in the 80s that Henry mm -hmm. and I still liked and were interested in hearing about going to the Odeon and zipping yeah. around town and going to the Mud Club and doing these things. He, he was from that and he seemed cool and he was young and he's kind of hip and the, the production company offices were sort of funky. And it's what I imagined like this. Oh, God, this is what would this is what we can have. Like we can have a, a cool rambling office yeah. and there's like actual people editing stuff and there's like tapes and people working and like, this is all foreign to us. Mm -hmm. And I remember just hoping, thinking this is going to be this, this guy is going to be, you know, um, the role model that I've been kind of looking for professionally. And of course, as you'll oh, hear, it, it would turn out to be sort of a disappointment in some ways of epic proportions, but it's part of the process and part of the journey. So that's what I remember about going in there was being hopeful. And the other thing I remember, I don't know if you remember this, Henry, right before we went in, I think his offices were on 23rd street between maybe sixth and seventh or seventh and eighth, somewhere around there. And there was a deli on the opposite corner. And when we went in to meet with them for the first time, which I think was felt, I, I do remember it feeling, as freighted as the meeting with Bill Baker in that it is kind of an audition. It was kind of a pitch. It's kind of like, let's see if this works together. And I think what Henry is referring to is, you know, Bill probably said, well, I'd like you to do this with MPI because they do a lot of these types of shows for, for NET. And it, but if it doesn't feel like a fit, I have somebody else that maybe I'll put you with. So I think it was probably like we were going to meet with the Marty brothers. If that worked out, we weren't going to go any farther. We would just work with them and do it. And I remember preparing for that and being nervous about that and stopping it at a deli beforehand for gum and water and, and, and beyond the sea was playing the sea, on, really, yeah. on the stereo in yeah. the deli, yes. and, which is like one of those stories that you tell now and everyone's like, oh, come on, that didn't happen. And a bird, shit, one, and a bird shit on Henry. I mean, it was, and it we was knew like, at that we point, knew it was going to happen. And it, was it was so perfect. It was like, yeah. we were laughing so hard. I mean, <laughs> and I remember hearing beyond, I mean, first of all, you don't hear beyond the sea playing on a stereo at a deli. It's like a really weird, like yeah. if they have a radio on, it's like on, you know, 1010 wins news or something. So, mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if it was Bob or Bill who approached Dodd Darren. Cause I know Dodd Darren, who's again, Bobby Darren's son, who was very young when Bobby Darren died. I think he was the gatekeeper. Like he, he controlled the estate and we sort of had to get him on board. I don't really remember how we did that or if we did that. Gary Lamel, Gary Lamel. Oh, it was Gary Lamel. God. Gary Lamel. You're right. So Gary Lamel. How did we get to Gary Lamel? Who is Gary Lamel? Gary Lamel was the head of not Warner music, but sort of head of the, the music division in Warner films. We realized quite quickly that we didn't have our shit together as far as licensing and master rights and any of that stuff. And I think that Bill Baker, Bill um, Marty, 
sort of said, well, who's got this? You know, we need the master rights. And I rang a friend of my mother's who worked at Warner's and I explained, and this is in 1997 or something. Mm -hmm. So I'm calling England saying, listen, we're in this situation. And he goes, you've got to talk to this guy, Gary Lamell. (laughs) Gary Lamell is the guy you need to talk to, but he's in Los Angeles. So anyway, somehow we, we got a hold of Gary Lamell. He put us in touch and we get, we, I don't know how we flew there. We flew there with Bob Marty, didn't we? I, I guess so. I mean, I can't remember the trips. I know, was it the same trip where we, did we interview? Um, Clowner. No, but oh, did, we inter- Dick, Clark, did we do, Clark. did we do Dick Clark? Yeah. And like, and this was all part of like, I'm sure, I mean, I'm, I'm laughing because there's no way in hell Bob Marty authorized a trip without 10 things being accomplished for multiple films on that one trip. He was very, very tight with the, and the budgets were tight. I'm sure I actually would love to know now what the budget was. I bet you it was not $200,000. It was probably 125,000. I don't know what it was. I don't even remember what we made weekly. I have no idea. We made, we made $10,000 each for the whole thing, for the whole thing. We were paid (laughs) $10,000 for our seven months. Or eight months, whatever the fuck it was. Oh my god, that's yeah, yeah. hilarious! I found a contract the other day. Oh, it you did? Signed, it was signed by you, and it was signed by me, and it wasn't and not signed, signed by, by Bob Marty. <laughs> that's going to come. That, that that will come back in a later part of the this. It, this, it this, gave this, us, this is so you know, fucking funny. It gave us rights to the uh, in, you know international sale oh and all god. that stuff, and it wasn't that's signed by so Bob Marty. Funny. I remember walking to Gary Lamell's <laughs> office, and I remember before we even talked to him, on his his um, radio, you know, his stereo uh, was a bo- uh, someone, Bobby Darren, doing this cover version of Mac the Knife, doing Mac the Knife, and I'd never heard it before. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what the hell? And Gary Lamel was pointing, this little guy, he was going, what do you think? What do you think? And I said, Where, where's that? What, what album's that from? And he goes, no, it's my tribute band. We do it on Saturdays. <laughs> and we we're like, oh my God, like he's a Bobby Darren nut. And... You know, you yeah, he was that? a singer. He was a, he was yeah. a, he was a semi-professional yeah. standards jazz singer who had had some, had somewhat of a career before becoming an executive at Warner brothers. And he was a huge Bobby Darren freak too. I mean, it's just yeah. like the kismet of all these things coming together is, is, is remarkable. And by the way, in, in a tank filled with sharks in the Los Angeles entertainment industry, Gary Lamel and his people were some of the nicest people that we ever dealt with on this project. Yeah. Um, what was it? Ellen? Ellen. Ellen Schwartz. Ellen. Shout out to you, Ellen Schwartz. Yeah. My new my New York guys are coming in. I mean, they yeah. they must have seen us for the rubes that we were. But I think Henry and I must have presented with a certain energetic, like puppy like you know naivete, which I think people who actually knew the ins and outs of the business you know, probably thought was a bit amusing, but they were helping us. And Gary, I mean, I don't, I don't remember Bob being at that meeting. He must've, maybe we went to LA and he went and did other stuff for other things. Do you no, remember? He wasn't there. He wasn't there. Am I right in thinking that Gary Lamel talked us through the whole thing with the master rights? And he said, yes. well, you, he said, you do have the master rights to Mac the knife, don't you? And, and or you know, he said, well, who's the, who's the director from Baltimore? What's his name? Who did the feature film? Oh, um, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Oh. The guy who did all the shows for HBO. Barry Levinson, Levinson. Barry Levinson. Barry Levinson. Barry Levinson. So Barry, he said, well, Barry Levinson has got the rights to do the feature film. He's got the master rights. 
And he called Barry Levinson up on our behalf to get the master rights, to give us access to the master right. rights for Mac the Knife. Gary Lamel did that. Yes, and, he did. And that was um, that was just and a huge he, moment. He, he may have he may have given us. I mean, Warner Brothers may have held all the rights to all the Darren compositions that we needed, and he may have made. I mean, there's no way. When I look at, I just watched the film last week. I mean, we use every song, which nowadays would probably be almost impossible. So yeah. we must have had Warner Brothers, if they controlled the catalog, uh, signing off on that. And Gary is probably completely the one who's instrumental in that way. I know we met with Gary at least a couple of times. Yeah. I remember he took us to lunch at the Warner Brothers commissary, which I was like, oh my God, yeah. this felt like. We are on the lot, you know, yeah. like it was just so cool. They took us to Ellen, took us to dinner. Yeah. I remember a dinner she took us to Hank and everybody yeah. around this big table, which like she put together this dinner for us. And uh -huh. it's like 20 people who all worked in different aspects. And this is the first time I ever, I had been to LA a few times before that, but never like on business. And it was the first time I realized like, oh, in a lot of ways, this is like a one industry town. Like everyone at this dinner, 16, 18 people, all worked in the film or movie business in some way. Yeah. There wasn't anyone who was like, oh yeah, you know, I, I do this or I do that. It's like, it was just this whole world that we were just like, I was just like, oh my God, you know, an I have arrived moment. We were, we were doing these oh, things. Oh, it was so cool. You know, Listen, and... man, we walked onto the lot of Warner Brothers. <laughs> we went into the, you know, we got to sit in on the, on the loudspeaker was Barry Levinson talking to Gary. Hey, crazy. Barry, I got these two kids. Hey, Gary, you know, I'm trying to do the feature for, hey, come on, give them a break. I mean, we we're sitting there like going, what the fuck is, you know, this was like, and then we went, and I swear to God, maybe I'm making it, I swear to God, Clint Eastwood was was having lunch at a two tables over. Oh my with God, his back you're right. To us, and he you're was, right. Clint Eastwood was you're there. Right. You're right, you're right. I totally forgot that. You're right, like, you're right. You know? Oh my God, yeah, it was, yeah. it was Hollywood. It was like, um, oh my God, it's just, it was it great. Was, it was, it was, yeah. I mean, in retrospect, having done many more productions now, it's so crazy how really seamlessly the whole thing just fell into place. I mean, honestly, it wasn't really us per se, except for what Henry's referencing about his contacts and our contacts and being able to sort of pull the strings that needed to be pulled. But I mean, it's also a lot of right place, right time, because by this point, you know, it's crazy to think that no one had done a Bobby Darren documentary. And if this was all happening now and no one had done a Bobby Darren documentary, like someone would have already been doing it and aggressively and quickly and better than us and all the things that come into it now, like, well, yeah. who were the directors? Like, what have they ever done? I mean, it's ridiculous to think that yeah, we've done nothing. We had we've done we, nothing. We've, no, we've literally we've, done nothing. And I think this is a, a good lesson for anyone who's starting out in the film <laughs> business or TV business. If you are passionate and you are single-minded and we, we, yes, we partied a lot and we played a lot, but my God, we, busted our balls to get to where we pulled out every single stop we had to get to each one of those hurdles. And we had that naivety. We were just going to do this. We were going to do this and no one was going to get in our way. And I, and I, and I think that energy came across to the Gary Lamels, the Steve mm -hmm. Blauners, the Bob Marty's, you know, when we walked into those rooms, we didn't know it at the time when we walked into the rooms, it was like, this is a done deal. We're, we're doing this. Mm -hmm. And I think, people just pick up on that. You know, we weren't trying to play a game. We weren't trying to be all slick and smart. We were probably stumbling over our words, but I think the passion was there. And I think looking back at it, that that was something that was picked up subconsciously or whatever by these pretty big players, mm -hmm. you know, in front of people who were 
fuck, we were nobody, you know. You know, so, I also, this, this comes up a lot in my business all the time, and I use this all the time. I actually have to use this against my own agents sometimes, because even people that work for you or are supposed to be involved in furthering your career, and I'm very, very fortunate to have an amazing uh, agent who does that for Meeting House Productions, but even he will say sometimes with my documentary ideas that I'm sort of kind of continually throwing at him and being like, oh man, it'd be so cool to do this or do that. He's like, yeah, well, you know, Netflix is going to really want a director who has a lot of credits in that space. And, and, and it's true to one degree, it is true that, that there's a lot more of this stuff that gets made now than got made when Henry and I were talking about doing this. But I use this line all the time because even people that I approach and I say, I, I think that a documentary about your band or about your career uh, or about your book or whatever would be really fascinating. And it inevitably comes up where, you know, they'll Google me or my production company and they'll see that, like, we don't really have a lot of credits of the sort that I'm talking to them about. And they'll always eventually come to a smart question that anyone should ask, which is why you? Why should you do this? And my answer is derived from exactly what Henry is talking about, which is, I think, something that I took away from the Darren experience, which is, why me? Because I'm the one on the other end of the phone telling you that this is a good idea and we should be doing it. And I have the passion for it and I'm ready to make this happen. And I got to you and we're talking and that's why. And, yeah. and I think a lot of times that's enough, you know, because I'm the one talking to you about it is a totally legitimate answer. If anyone ever asks you why they should do it with you, as opposed to the person that has all the sexy credits or Alex Gibney or, you know, any industrial documentary complex that has just vacuums up opportunities. Yeah. Uh, but if you have, if you like, we did enough of the work, it sounds like I don't really remember that we had a really cool binder. I wish we still had it, but we did enough of the work leading up to it to sort of have a good handle on the story. And I think we were lucky that Bobby Darren's life was relatively short. So the beats of the story were not, we didn't have to deal with an 80 year life or 70 year life, which would have been impossible in the time frame that we had to do this. So. Right. Yeah. Let's uh, let's go back to LA, which is, I understand this is your, this was not only kind of the first trip for you guys as professional filmmakers but you're basically getting introduced to this whole la hollywood scene and jason am i right that dick clark was your first interview i mean that it was the biggest get probably of the whole cast of the documentary right him and Amit Erdogan were the two. At the time, it felt like Dick Clark was the most important get because Dick Clark in 1996, 1997 still meant quite a lot to rock and roll and television and, and documentaries like this. And mm -hmm. he was extremely critical in Darren's career. He was right. there at the beginning. He, yeah. he, he really championed him. I do remember, I remember prepping for that interview. I, I, I think Henry is right. I remember Bob being on the plane with us to LA for this trip, but knowing Bob, he probably was like, you guys are going to go do Gary Lamell. He was there when we interviewed Dick Clark. I know that, but he wasn't there on some of these other things that we did like meeting Steve Blauner. So I'm not sure where Bob went or what he was doing, but I remember meticulously preparing for the interview with Dick Clark on the plane. I could see the legal pad right now. I had like 40 pages of questions. I mean, over-prepared, right? Over-prepared for what I was aware was, and I'd never interviewed anyone of note at this point. I'd done probably some interviews, field interviews working at uh, day and date, not even at MSNBC. At MSNBC, I was just sort of a, a show AP preparing materials for broadcast. 
my first job in TV as a PA, I'd done some field things, but I mean, I never properly interviewed anyone of note. I interviewed sort of people who tangential, everyday people who might've been involved in a news story that we were covering, but I'd certainly never interviewed a celebrity. And I certainly never interviewed anyone <clears throat> of the weight of a Dick Clark. And so that was all in the balance. And then having Bob with us kind of, um, not micromanaging because it's kind of crazy in retrospect that he let me do the interview even i, thought so. I think now yeah. like now i'm like if it was me to be honest and i had a kid that had never interviewed anybody would i let him interview dick clark probably not so i mean i want to give bob credit for however the hell he allowed that to happen um because that's kind of a crazy choice uh-huh in oh my god it was hilarious i mean first of all i should say that that was always jason's interview i I kind of knew who Dick Clark was, but I had no idea of the importance of Dick Clark because I didn't grow up in America. Uh, true, true. And so I didn't, I kind of got him, but I didn't really get him. So that was always Jason's interview. And um, I was there and it was a, it was a very funny interview because the first thing he did is he, he went on an absolute rant about PBS when he goes, all right, so who's this for? And you go, it's, it's PBS. And he goes, let me tell you about PBS. They ripped me off. They rip fucking artists off. They rip everybody off. They get this shit for free. They are fucking outrageous. You know, this is blah, blah, And he just went off on this. And I was like, oh, my God. And this is probably why, to this day, I still love Burbank, which is a very unsexy, unappealing part of Los Angeles and of mm -hmm. Hollywood. But I love Burbank. That's where Dick Clark's offices were at the time. And they were in this kind of like Tudor building brick kind of rambling collection of buildings. And I remember that we were ushered in and we were ushered into this large kind of, I don't really know how to describe it. It wasn't a conference room. It was just like a, it was a memorabilia room. It was like a mini yeah. museum, which is where we were doing. And this, and Dick Clark had mind blowing amounts of rock and roll memorabilia that even to Henry meant something. Like he had like, oh, there's John Lennon's jacket. There's Elvis's piano. Yeah. There's this, that like in this room, it was kind of like, oh my God, there's a jukebox insane. filled with all these songs that he had been involved with. No, hang on, hang on. Because he had his wife there and he said, honey, are they too close? Are they too close? <laughs> That's right. And he goes, pull back, pull the camera, back, pull it back a little bit. Oh my God, and I didn't remember this stuff. standing with the monitor. Oh my God, you're right. All right, Dick, that's good. All right, I think that's good. All right, don't pull in. All right, don't, no zooming in. All right. Oh, you're so and right. And then he would go, you'd go like this. All right, long answer. Bobby Darren, I first met Bobby Darren, the Coca Panel. And he's like, short answer. Bobby Darren was, and he would do this, and he would do two, he would answer it yes. in two, the long and the short. And then he got up and he left. And when it came to the editing, there was no editing. There was literally, there was no he editing. edited everything. There was nothing yes. to play with. Yeah. I can remember that. I can remember Bob Marty. Bob is a very, Bob drank about 12 large iced coffees a day and he was continually almost vibrating nervously. He's a very, his energy was extreme, yeah, flopping his hair. He's very kind of ticky this way. And he had this way of pursing his lips, which indicated dissatisfaction with how you were about to do something that I'm of course picking up on, sweating in my chair, waiting for Dick Clark with my 40 pages of notes. And just like the Bill Baker interview, all of that was for naught because yeah. Dick Clark took the interview over. And I don't think I ever asked him a question. He was after. genius. He was genius. <laughs> the, he the thing that, Bob Marty told me on the plane, I remember this. He said, when you go in and you, you're interviewing Dick, the first thing you should say is in an offhand manner, you should say something like, 
Thank you so much for agreeing to do the interview. I have about an hour. We have about an hour's worth of stuff to cover, but we'll make it really quick. He's like, you do that so that you set the expectation right off the bat that like, you know, these people will try to blow you off. They'll try to give you 15 minutes when you really need an hour. They've agreed to an hour. There are people, there are people agreed to an hour, but when you get there, he's going to try and just do as little as possible. So set the expectation, throw off the time frame, So that way you can deal with it right off the front. And so that, I don't think I said one thing after I said Bob's rehearsed thing, I said, thank you so much, Mr. Clark. I have about an hour's worth of, uh, let me stop you right there. That's literally how far I got. <laughs> yeah. Let me stop you right there. Nothing <laughs> takes an hour. That's the direct quote. Nothing takes an hour. He's like, right, are you ready? Are you rolling? I'm going to give you what you need in 20 minutes, long yeah. soundbite, short soundbite and you know, in retrospect, it fits the the type the type of documentary we were making because let's be clear, this was a pledge special for PBS. This was not a Oscar winning, hard hitting, pull no punches, investigative journalistic documentary. It was it was designed to be played on public television stations across the United States while they were asking viewers for money, and it was designed to have long sections of songs played uh, for entertainment purposes. And then they would interrupt it live on television and then come back to the studio and they would have, they certainly didn't have Henry and I that I recall, but they had Bob and other people involved with the film, I think on set sometimes as they typically do to talk about Bobby Darren, talk about raising Jim money Scalum. and all that. Jim, Jim Scalum, Scalum. Jim Scalum. <laughs> that's right. So in, re in retrospect, when I watch this, Dick's, Dick's sound bites are so like canned they're what we would say is canned in the business. Like when I, when Bobby Darren walked into my office, let me tell you, I knew right away, this kid was going to be a star. And sure enough, he was, that was like literally the type of bite. So rather than like what I, in my mind, I was going to have this like really long conversation with Dick Clark about Bobby Darren's fascinating, interesting life. Instead, I literally said nothing more than I got about an hour. And that's, I don't think I ever got a word in edgewise. I have to say, as uh, you know, just as uh, as a viewer <laughs> rewatching this 25 years later, I feel like Dick Clark comes off as very sincere. He does. And he to me, he's a, he looks like a great interview. Well, you know what? I realize now if I was Dick Clark at that point in his career and life and these two chuckleheads come into my memorabilia room to interview me about Bobby Darren, like I think he was just so far gone into his thing and you know at this point he's still running his own company let's remember like he's still running dick clark productions which was a big big production company in television i mean they produced all the live award shows uh, a lot of content bandstand might have still been on for crying out loud in 96 97 he might have still but he still hosted new year's rock and eve like he was still a he was still a presence and he knew a hell of a lot more than we did about what we needed i'm not sure i'd be interesting to think now is there any way to kind of break through that because uh, another moment of over preparation, which I guess is there's a theme here that we're talking about. It's kind of like we always were over prepared for something and probably woefully under under prepared in other ways. Let me turn that around too and, and say that I think the Armand Erdogans, you've got better things to do than interview me. Dick mm -hmm. Clark, you've got better things to do than interview you, did this because of the fact that we appreciated Bobby Darren the same way that they did and the, what the relationship that they had with Bobby Darren. And here were two young guys passionate about someone that they respected so much in mm -hmm. the music industry that they were willing to give their time to interview these two kids. That's who, true. You know, and I think that's, you know, that comes that's to, important. to me. You're that's right. why Dick Clark 
did that. He, you That's know, Ahmed did. I mean, Ahmed was yeah. even bigger. I mean, Ahmed Erdogan at that time was still a powerful yeah. person in the music business. Can you and guys remind so, me who Ahmed Erdogan is? He was the well, president the of, of Atlantic. Atlantic Records. He was the founder of Atlantic Records. Right. Signed Ray Charles, signed Aretha Franklin, Led Zeppelin. Partied like a rock star, looked like a college professor, was the most dapper, erudite, well-spoken, cultured, New York philanthropic presence, and this rock and roll guy, just an amazing, incredible yeah. person. And Henry's totally right that, and I think this is also important for people to remember if they're thinking about doing stuff like this themselves, is there are certain people who, if you approach them to talk about someone in their life, like a Bobby Darren, whoever it might be, they will say yes to you, even though they have a lot of better things to do. Like, I don't know who this person is, but if you, if you contacted Martin Scorsese's office and you said, I'm working on a documentary about so-and-so, and I'd love to have, you know, an hour of, of Marty's time, even though you're a nobody, if that gets to Marty, he's going to go, I, I definitely want to do that because no one else yeah. has asked him to do that. And yeah. that sometimes I think trumps all the other shit that gets you access, quote unquote. Yeah. yeah. Some of the other people you interviewed for the documentary that people will know, Tony Orlando, Connie Francis. Uh, I'm wondering, I wonder if there are other celebrities of the uh, of the era uh, that you encountered and interviewed that um, make a good story. Well, I, had, I don't know how we how do we, how did them we up? divide up the, the interviews? But anyway, I got to, I got Connie Francis and um, Connie Francis was a Bobby Darren sweetheart. The first their first girlfriend, first boyfriend. They go back to the 50s when they 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 were playing up in upstate New York and, and they weren't famous. And Connie Francis actually sort of had hits before Bobby Darren. But um, I I remember it very well. It was a January. Um, we'd been in this bar until about five in the morning my flight was at six um it was about minus 20 degrees in new york i had to fly down to orlando florida and i remember getting off this plane i've never felt so ill in my entire life and i was just it was like 90 degrees i am sweating i just you know and i get to this this house and I've hired a, a, a film crew that I didn't know. They don't know me to turn up and, and I get there a bit early and, and I open the door and, and this very small uh, sort of uh, red bombshell says, oh, hi, my God, you look awful. <laughs> was that Connie Francis? And, and it was Connie Francis. like, you better get in here right now. She's like, you need to get in my swimming pool and, 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 and cool off and come here. I'm, and Bobby's got some, And she gave me Bobby Darren's swimming trunks from oh like 57 or something. Come on. She, she did not have Bobby Darren's swimming trunks. She had Bobby. She had all his. She had. Whether they were his or not, I don't know. But anyway, they were oh way too God. small for me. <laughs> But anyway, I thought, Christ, I feel so awful. Anyway, she had this oh kind of indoor God. pool. And I, I, so I changed. I was in the bathrobe <laughs> that she'd given me. And I was lying in this pool, like cooling off with a glass of lemonade in this woman. I'd met this woman for not 20 minutes. And I'm lying in the swimming trunks in the pool. And she's like, so, you know, chatting about Bobby Darren. And the camera crew, ding dong, come in. And they walk in and they see me lying in the pool. There's that's Connie Francis. As the producer. 
and they get the look on their face. They're like, are you? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm the producer. I'm just, uh, I'll be out in a minute. And they're like, all right, should we set up somewhere? It's like, yeah, just yeah, sure. over there. <laughs> anyway, so get out and I... <laughs> Oh, oh my god! I anyway, that's so fucking funny. Oh but the funny god, thing is, so 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 we're in the halfway through this interview, and you know we're talking about Bobby Darren, and the door goes, and someone um, comes in, and Connie Francis is like, "Is that you, Bobby?" And you hear this, yep, "Oh my god, hey, Connie!" And I look around, I was like, and you know I'm pretty hungover, <laughs> maybe still drunk, and like, "Holy shit, it's Bobby Darren!" And I'm thinking, "Fuck." I'm hallucinating. He's been, he's been dead for you know 20 years at this yeah. time. And he and I'm like, what? It's like, hey Bobby, hey Connie. And I was like, yeah. And I said, like, who's that? Oh, it's Bobby. Don't worry. I was like, Bobby, Bobby Darren. And I was like, who is that? It's like, oh, well, it's not really Bobby Darren. She's he's called Ron Langell. And he's and he's my he's a really oh, close God. friend of mine. And he's oh. been a Bobby Darren impersonator for, oh. for, for forever. How long, Bobby? And oh, at least 30 years. Even when Bobby oh. was alive, I was impersonating oh him. And he's got the toupee, he's got the gold, he's got Oh everything. my god, I forgot about this. I'm I'm I'm, she, I'm literally crying wait, right he now. Even looked, so the guy even looked like Bobby Darren? No, he did not look at all like Bobby Darren. He looked not a not a not a scintilla like. He looked Bobby like Darren. a very bad Bobby Darren. Well, imagine imagine an Orlando, Florida Saturday night oh, nightclub impersonator of Bobby Darren in nineteen eighties and nineties. That's what he looked like. But you see, Rick, my... this, this is part of the world sometimes that you're in, right? When you're when you're trolling amidst the celebrities who once were and are still around, but maybe don't have the same cachet that they once mm -hmm. had. I think a lot of things like this can happen where Connie's like, you know, in Connie's mind, God love her. Like, this is probably all about her. Like Henry showing up, yeah. the documentary, like sometimes the way people like this think is that it's all about her relationship with Bobby Darren. And as a producer, sometimes you, you go with that or you don't necessarily correct that because you want to get what you want to get. But also I think what can happen is what happened to Henry, which is she makes a few phone calls and she's trying to get Ron Langell into the film, uh, you know, Oh, let, let me hook up Ron. You yes. show up and he'll put you in. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Henry, if you had a moment where you had to like, tell Ron that you weren't going to interview him or did you feel, did I you put him on camera or like, what did you do? <laughs> Cause I'm sure he was on, pushing it off. We put him on camera for about 15 minutes to get his yeah. take on Bobby Darren, just to be polite, you know, just, just to be polite. Was, yeah. yeah. That's the polite thing to do, but yeah. you in the swimming pool. Oh my God. I forgot about that story, Henry. That is unbelievable. Very, I very mean, unprofessional. And you know, Jason, that's oh. the first time I'd heard the expression gonzo journalism. You, cause I come back and I was telling you the story. And you go, that is so gonzo. And I was thinking, what is gonzo? But now I know, yes, it Rolling was. Off the plane. Wow, you look yeah. like shit. Yeah, 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 literally. Oh, my God, you look awful. Oh, my God. Uh, was anyway. that the same trip? Did you do Tony Orlando on the same trip, or did you do him somewhere else? I think you did him in, like, Vegas or Arizona or something. Do you remember? Oh he was in Vegas, wasn't he? Yeah. God, he was great, too. I didn't really know who he was. You know, I again, I hadn't grown up in the 70s and 80s in America. I didn't. Tony yeah. and Dawn, I didn't. It, you Tony know, Orlando and Don, yeah. But I have a lot of respect for Tony Orlando. I mean, I, I'm not a fan Absolutely. of Absolutely. But my God, man, that guy, 
his knowledge of music, his his expertise in it, and it's just his talent was just incredible. Um, yeah, really, really interesting. He's guy. such a nice guy. He's so great in Henry's yeah. interview with him. He's got such good energy. He, yeah. he, he's just he's performing. He does this thing with he's snapping his fingers. Bobby could do this. Yeah, yeah. And he yeah. had you right away, man. Like, yeah. and then he would take it away. Okay. Yeah. He would take it away. I mean, it's so showy. It's so Vegas. But, but he's not under any illusions that he's anyone other than who he is. Um, yeah. I think it shows when you when you look at him in the in the film, like he, oh, he's, he's such great. a nice such a nice guy. Jason, I wanted to ask yeah. you about um, sort of moving away from the familiar celebrities. I wanted to ask you about Steve Blauner, who was oh my god Bobby Darren's okay. uh, manager, right? So S Steve Blauner, before he was Bobby Darren's manager, was one third of what was known in Hollywood as BBS, which was a new Hollywood production studio, which stood for Bert, Bob and Steve. The Bert was a guy named Bert Schneider, who's was sort of Hollywood royalty, but on the New York side, like there's a time in Hollywood history when the film business was really run out of New York as much as it was Los Angeles. I think Bert Schneider came up out of that sort of background. He's someone that's featured very prominently in Peter Biskin's seminal book about New Hollywood, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Um, so there's Bert, there's Bob, who's the film director, Bob Rafelson, who worked on many, many notable films with Jack Nicholson, and Steve, who's Steve Blauner. Now, Steve Blauner and BBS were behind the monkeys. Okay, they created the monkeys and produced the monkeys TV show. And so they had a brief moment. Um, and I guess before that happened, Blauner had been Darren's manager and was a <clears throat> super colorful rogue type music business character. And I can't remember, Henry, if this was, we went there to interview him or this was our first, I think we went to have a meeting with him in Marina Del Rey. I'm not sure that was the interview. Yeah, it was a meeting, it was a meeting. And Henry and I were together. Bob was not there. He was late. He lived... Oh, what did he show up? He didn't show up, and he did show up. And remember, Steve Blount said, "I can't stand that fucking guy. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want that guy. Anything. I don't oh want that guy anything to do with the production." Oh my god! I totally man. I can't believe you remember this, Henry. Yeah. I must have really done a lot of damage to myself over the years. That you. I mean, how do you, you remember first that? Of all, how do you? How do you remember this? And I don't. I mean, you probably did more damage to yourself than I did to me. <laughs> You're English for crying out loud. But no, anyway. No, I don't know. So yeah, Henry and I showed up at Marina Del Rey, which is where Steve lived. And we were in this like this condo complex where everything looks the same. Somehow we find Steve's door, which I can see right now, us walking to the door. The door opens, I swear to God, literally, this is what it gets said. Hey, Steve, Jason and Henry, you guys ever take opium suppositories and stand on your head? That's the opening line. That's it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And we're like, Oh, this is interesting. Like, I mean, Henry and I are probably would be interested in opium <laughs> suppositories. Like you yes, got please. me, I yes, think. I think we're... <laughs> so what a character. I mean, a great untrustworthy narrator in all things. This is what really happened. I mean, he told us so many fantastical stories that we couldn't use. One of which, if you remember, Henry was Steve Blauner claimed yes. that Bobby Darren would get so excited while performing on stage in front of an audience that he had to wear a condom under his tuxedo pants because he would orgasm while performing. And he would tell us this with a straight face. And I'd be like, that can't come on. He'd be like, I'm telling you, God's honest truth. He'd tell you a hundred stories yeah. like that, which you couldn't use. Um, but, but he was one, so colorful and great. The one thing he just 
wanted to tell us all, really all about was Al Jolson. Yes, that's right. Al Jolson. Oh my God. Uh, another thing, you were, which we then followed through on, Henry. Remember, we, we tried went to do the his, Al Jolson documentary. We went to his graveyard. Oh my God. I mean, we had to be, do you remember he drove us out? He's like, right, we're going to go see Al Jolson's grave. You're I'm so like, right. He's, Al, if, if it wasn't for Al Jolson, there wouldn't be any fucking Hollywood. None of these fucking idiots. They have no fucking idea. Al Jolson. We're going, Al, Al Jolson? I'd have heard of it. Al Jolson. Al, look, we're going to get in the car. We're going to, do you have a car? We got a car. Do you remember we were driving through? Oh goes, my God. This is this big Jewish, you know, New York. Is he New York? Anyway, six foot five. And I just remember driving through some part of LA. He goes, look, Jews, Jews, yeah, that's right. Jews. Look, hey, over there. That's Jews. right. I'm thinking, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Who is this guy? So, oh, my God, Henry. I, I totally forgot that. And that actually, we spent a good amount of time pursuing an Al Jolson documentary. Yes. I think we met with his heir, his grandson, his son in New yeah, York. Yeah, up in the Upper West Side. On yeah. the Upper West Side. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you're totally right. Oh, my God. And I think also, I don't know if he had anything to do with Sammy, but we also pursued a Sammy Davis doc, which to me, yeah. I still have the... Um, I still have the uh, the pitch packet uh, at my home, Do you? which is which is one of the ones that got away. That would have been oh. such a great. And we had that. Henry had that. Henry had Sammy Davis Jr. sewn up. He oh. had Altavis Davis. He Remember I went to spend a weekend with uh, Quincy Jones. In he France. was with Quincy Jones in France. He had the whole thing sewn up, which is crazy. And I don't think. Well, it has been done, not particularly well, I don't think. But at the time, oh no one had done it, and that was sort of. Uh, we'll we'll talk about that in a second, sort of like what happened after. But yeah, Blauner. Also remember that when we did interview Blauner, and I don't remember if he came to New York to do this interview or we went back to LA. I don't really remember, but I do remember, and you can see it in the film if you look at it. He he shows up and he's wearing the dirtiest black T-shirt, and he doesn't dress up at all. You know, like Al Diorio, I think is wearing like a coat and tie, and like you know, Dodd Darren is a Hollywood guy, even though he's not an entertainer himself. He's He's wearing a nice sweater and his hair is done. He's got a little makeup on. Like Steve Blanner shows up, crumbs, hair. <laughs> I remember sitting, Steve, you know, do you want to maybe put a different shirt on? Why? What's wrong with this one? Well, it doesn't look great on camera, Steve. It's like all the white stuff on your shirt is showing up. I don't fucking care. Let's go. You know, yeah, yeah. You just you, you can't talk him into doing anything. Um, but but I think of all the people that we were with, we sort of we we had a good vibe with Steve. Um and yeah. I think Henry, he's the one who led us to that, those film canisters somewhere in Los Angeles, which had the Coconut Grove performance, which had never been seen before. Do you remember that? Yes. Um, there was, um, he's like, you got to go talk to this guy. He's got yes. six cans of film and we didn't know what it was. It just was like film, like eight millimeter yeah. or 16 millimeter film cans. That's and I don't right. think we knew what it was until we brought it back to New York yep. and had it like, transferred to digital yeah. or whatever. I don't even, was there digital editing at the time? I don't know sure if there was. Beta, yeah. Beta. It was probably still tape to tape, but, um, but we yeah. had it transferred and then we realized we had this amazing coconut grove film, which was, which had audio and, um, and also, also the image. That clip you could see Bobby Darren at the beginning does a drum solo. He's mucking around with the drums. Right. He's known as a singer, actor, yeah. And he just does this Gene Krupa esque yeah. drum solo, like just what? The You're like, and then wow, the other whoa. thing is, you can see, and I think we slowed it down. And with Steve Blauner saying, "You know, Bobby used to get very excited," you can very clearly see Bobby Darren's erection 
It is oh. very tight. <laughs> That's 19, not in the film. Come 19, on. It is in the film. That, if you look at the well, no, but I said, we don't mention it in the documentary. We don't mention it, but Steve Brown is talking about Bobby Downey. <laughs> you get very excited and we slow it down. Because I remember being in the editing room with Debbie, with the editor, saying, let's slow this down. And, and if you get it, you get it. If you don't get it, you don't oh get it. Oh, my God. So next time you see it, just have okay, a look. I didn't. I don't remember that. I'll have to look for that. Do, okay. do you think we put in? Do you think we sort of like fucked with Bob a little bit by putting in a, a shot, close-up shot of the, the erection, supposed erection to try and? Say, I remember the. I remember the editing. I was so mad, and I was mad all again when I saw it. This is just a funny thing for other sort of producers or filmmakers that the things that you're mad about. 25 years ago, sometimes you'll still be mad about 25 years later. It infuriated me watching the film again, when after we had already seen and heard Ahmet Erdogan on camera, and he, you cannot mistake his voice. No one sounds like Ahmet Erdogan, okay? Mm -hmm. We do not have a lot of interviews in this film. I mean, yeah. Dodd, Connie, Dick Clark, Tony Orlando, Al DiOrio. Um, that's pretty much, a couple more, right? Yeah. So I remember the fight with Bob over the second time that you hear Al's voice. He's talking over some of this footage of Bobby in a studio. It's one of my favorite sections of the film. Bobby was a great drummer. He was a great performer. He's, yes. And, and Bob made us put on the screen voice of Amit Erdogan. In yes. This, these cheesy chirons that, of course, we couldn't, we weren't allowed yeah. to use real graphics. We had to use like, whatever the avid graphics were at the time, the editing system graphics. So they look really, really amateurish. Voice of Ahmet Erdogan. And I remember saying to him, like, that looks so terrible. You're yeah. ruining the film. Like, this is awesome montage of this amazing black and white footage. And we have to put voice of, he's like, the PBS audience won't know who it is. They can't follow that. And it's for them. I, yeah. And I lost, insulting, I remember we lost insulting. that. We lost that argument and it still looks horrible. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, this is a good spot, actually, because what I wanted to do was to ask you guys about you go out. We got all the interviews from Hollywood and Florida and other places. Now going back to New York and we got to put this movie together. Uh, mm -hmm. Both of you had production <clears throat> experience, but um, this is the first time you're really making, you know, a long form documentary interviews, narration, archive footage, music. Uh Mm -hmm. Is there a learning curve that you can remember? Which is just like, we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> Both. <laughs> I don't really remember, to be honest with you. I, I remember working on the script. Jason worked on the script. Jason is a great writer, brilliant writer. Wow. He wrote all the, the um, voiceover that Keith Oldman did. Mm -hmm. um, he put the script to, well, maybe we both put the script together, the structure of it. Mm -hmm. I I spent a lot of time in the editing suite yeah. with Debbie, with Debbie. The, yeah. the editor, not because I was a great editor or because I, um, you know, in, enjoyed editing, although I, I really loved that process. It was because I just needed to get away from Bob Marty. I could not be in the <laughs> office with Bob Marty. I just, he was at this point yes. insane. And, and also, um, Deb, we were editing, Rick. Deborah was an editor that I think had worked with Bob before. I don't remember how we found yeah. her, but she did a brilliant job, by the way. Fantastic editor, great person, and much more like Henry and I, like kind of a cool, young New York person. And she edited out of her home, which is down here in the West Village, actually, at the time, right? It was like yeah. on the corner of Greenwich Avenue and you know, 6th or 7th Avenue. And so, yeah, I think Henry, I remember Henry really going down there every day and... Yeah having them work in sections. Maybe I don't really remember because I think 
well, then we were doing Paddy Page as well came along. That's and I, right. And yeah. I, I mean, that's a whole other story, but I still, I get a little resentment because the, I think we were associated. Did you get, did you get 10 grand for that too? Not even, that was part of the package. <laughs> and, but I spent, I, I really feel like it edited, put together a lot of that film. Oh, you did? With Debbie in that editing suite. And yeah. um, it, was a, it was an amazing experience to be editing because she was a skilled editor and um, you could see how just putting in a frame or taking out a frame really played mm -hmm. with the flow of the film and, and, and you know, was, but we wouldn't have got there if we wouldn't, we had a sort of working script that Jason had put together in the office. He was in the office, I was it with Debbie, and I think Jason, you were starting to work on stuff of, yeah, I mean, this, this, this gets into sort of the dysfunction of the yeah. work experience and the, and the place itself. Henry, I think wisely, self-protectively realized a lot earlier than I did that there was some toxicity going on uh, in the workplace uh, related to who was running the company. Let me just put it that way. And he, he kind of removed himself much more from that. I was still in this hopeful, I mean, it's funny now to me because I've repeated this pattern many times in my life. I was still in this kind of hopeful denial, like, well, he's not all bad. You know, I do learn a lot from him. He does, he takes me to do these shoots and I was kind of willing to go. And of course, on any trip like that, it, you, you'd get all the, the experience of like being yelled at or, you know, feeling less than. Um, like the or, Irish tenor, Jason? The, I, <laughs> On Long Island, yes, the Irish tenor Frank. Um, oh my God, yeah. Bob was so Bob would work on a number of these pledge specials at any one time. I realize now, as I run a production company, Bob's mo was basically five productions, one team. And so while Henry and I are working on the Bobby Darren thing, we're also working on the Patty Page documentary, which he had uh, secured a contract for, I guess. Yeah. So I think Henry, you, you had a lot more to do with that. I think you, did you go do interviews for that? Like, I think that's where the Andy Williams interview was maybe like, I never did interviews, but I, I feel as though, but you talked I to Patty really, a lot. I talked to her a lot. I never interviewed her. Um, I, I feel like I put the whole thing together. Yeah. We, we got that massive amount of tape of right, her big, right. her three big shows. And I went through that and sort of yes. cut all that in and that's a whole yeah. nother story. But, um, I mean, that's, an, that's another amazing woman who... who she was incredible. Yeah. She's the first um, person to have three... She had a show on all three of the existing American television yeah. networks at the same time. That was Patty yeah. Page. Um, yeah, so I think Henry wisely was ensconced downtown with Deborah, sort of putting together these sections of the film. I do remember I, I had had enough experience on my two previous jobs. I could put a script together where you have voiceover sound bites, and I had a sense for how those would kind of work complementary in, yeah. in a complementary fashion. So I think we had a script. Um, I don't remember a lot of like micromanaging on that process, really. I think at the time it was a lot of kind of BS that Henry's referencing where it's sort of like, we have a contract here, but it's never signed. That yeah. happens so many times with so many important things. And that ultimately would be why I ended up leaving MPI <clears throat> because eventually it just became, it became too much. And it was just too representative of this person's reluctance to just do very basic business stuff that really was was nothing to him to sign a contract that we'd already performed and agreed upon, but he always kept kind of this, he was so uh, commitment phobic in a way that he wouldn't sign all of these things that needed to be signed. And it just was, 
Henry and I, I mean, I, I, my wife, you know, will attest to this, like, and I wish I could remember Henry, what we were crying about, but I know I went home and cried many times during the making of Bobby Darren, yeah. uh, that somehow things were so effed up in some way that I felt like yeah. just completely at loose ends. I know Henry and I drank a lot at the time. Um, I think that we, it, any kind of issues that in a tense situation with two people who are kind of doing this together, being put upon by a third party, you know, maybe playing us off each other a little bit. I don't really know, but like whatever tensions that Henry and I would have as a result of the creative process would eventually get released in epic marathon yeah. wood bar drinking sessions. <laughs> yeah. all, it would all yeah. come out, you know, man, no, no, you know, like a bunch of drunken talk that for us at the time, it was our mechanism for communicating and feeling that we could be vulnerable with each other in the moment. I think it was, it was, it was more, it was, even worse than that, because on the one hand, you had the complete dysfunction of MPI with the two the people who ran it. And, and, and it was kind of, you just, you didn't know which foot to be on. It was yes. insane. And it was yeah. totally insane. At the second time, we were very, well, I can only speak for myself. You know, there was a lot of insecurity. I'd never done this before. I was heavily drinking, partying, mm -hmm. probably all sorts of issues. You know, I had a, I had a, now I had it's a one-year-old, nine-month-old yeah. child or yeah. four-month. I just got the whole thing was insane. At the at the same time, we were twenty-eight, I think. We weren't even yeah. thirty yet, and we were we were producers. We we were uh, doing stuff that our peers from college could only dream of doing. Right. So the arrogance and the ego mixed with the cocaine and the alcohol, mixed mm -hmm. with the insanity of the office, mixed with this passion for Bobby mm -hmm. Darren, was this sort of maelstrom of mm. creative insanity that yes. ultimately led to a great film but but my god we we went through the ringer uh, you know we went through the ringer and you know i think it's important to say this for people who maybe don't know this about issues having to do with addiction and recovery but you know there's a there's a truism that that emotionally you remain the age you were when you picked up your first drink or drug if you are someone who's an alcoholic or a drug addict. And so while Henry and I were 28, 29 years old when we were doing this, and that was very young to be doing it at the time. Nowadays, it's kind of silly that that's felt so young. Like yeah. people make people make feature films for $100 million or are 24 years old and never made a film. Like it's, it's so different. But even though we were 28, 29, for me, I emotionally was 16 years old and yeah. remained that way for many, many years beyond that time as well. And so that, that way. and behave that way and being in that pressure environment. Um, and Henry is so right on the back foot, uncertain. Oh, like this, I realize now is what people will do who are themselves insecure and keep everyone kind of like in a barrel of crabs clawing each other to sort of try and yeah. get to the top and get a breath of air. Um, and it was, it wasn't all bad, but there was just enough food dropped into the barrel every once in a while to keep you thinking you could figure this out and you could get around it. But, yeah. um, it was a crazy experience and I don't know, I wish I could remember what the hell there was to cry over. It might've just been all the things you're talking about, Hank, just the, the pressure, was, the immaturity, the, the it drinking. It was so right? intense because this was something that was so close to our heart and you're dealing with at any moment we, we got, mm -hmm. I mean, you might remember we got read the riot act by Jim Scalem that we, we were going to have this film taken away from us mm. if we didn't 
I can't even remember what we didn't what do. We, what we, we didn't do. <laughs> what we didn't do. But, you know, this yeah. is our, we had put so much work into this. And these guys were basically saying, if you don't fucking get this right, if you don't do this, and we were living through their own insanity. Mm. Yeah. For me, having it, the having someone who could just any day now go, you know what, I'm going to take this away from yeah. you and yeah. you're not going to be the producer was a really frightening thing. And and also, I think I remember clocking 100 hours a week in some mm-hmm. of this editing. That's a lot of work <laughs> sitting in an editing suite. Yeah. And then I, when I wasn't sleeping, I was drinking. Yeah. You know, so at some point, after it's gonna a couple crack. Months, it's going to crack. You, yeah. You know, you're going to. Yeah. 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 It was an intense experience. Yeah. Henry, what about, I mean, you guys are dealing with both being having sort of a wild life in New York City and then all the stresses involved with making this project. What about tensions between you and Jason at the time? No, we, I mean, as I, well, Jason and I had a, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> this is a big topic for a, for a whole other episode, but yes. I mean, we've run over for four minutes, but I, what I would say, we had a, an interesting relationship, um, but we were as thick as thieves. And actually, I seem to remember we basically shut everyone else out. It was mm-hmm. Jason and I were drinking together, working together. And I remember some of Jason's friends kind of complaining, like, you know, you never see us. You never, we mm-hmm. kind of had this just rather unhealthy little bubble that we were in. We were in a foxhole mentality. We were really were, and but and we were living together. But there was never any, <laughs> apart from when I woke up in the morning and, and lit a cigarette and stuff that we didn't like. But apart from that, there wasn't any. We never fell out. Um, no. We never. I mean, you know, we would get. If we got back on, you know, on Saturday if we weren't working. You know, it'd be sort of ten thirty, ten o'clock. We'd put swingers on. Do you remember that? Yes. Swingers. Swingers had just swingers come out. We'd, we would watch swingers till midnight. And then we go, right, it's on. Let's, Let's go. go. It's on. Let's go out. Go out at midnight. I mean, the whole yeah. thing is, you know, if I'm not in bed today at 9.30, I'm going to ruin the next day. Um, Me too. You know, I stayed so, up last night watching the uh, Love Rocks New York Benefit concert uh, streaming until 12.30. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to be able to function for the rest of the day. So, But no, there was, there was nothing. I, I, I don't remember um, any tension really other than the whole production of it but between us we never sort of fell out no that. i think henry's right that it was we were i think in a way it's a lesson for future um sort of toxic psychopaths if you really want to succeed in de- demoralizing and destroying people separate these two don't let them collectively survive together because that's all that we really had to understand i do remember so many times um Henry and I having to go outside on the balcony to smoke cigarettes and sort of talk over what had just happened, you know, what, so, and what's our response? How do we deal with this? And Henry's right. Like a lot of the pressure that he was under, he's a newborn child. Uh, he's under visa pressure. Like this has to work for a lot of different reasons. And I think being in it together, I mean, if, if it had been one or the other of us alone, I don't know what, I don't, I don't know if I would have been able to get through it. I probably would have given up or walked away or, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I think that the only reason we got through it was that we were in it together and we had this relationship that went, you know, back before it. Yeah. There's a great memory I have on, on that fire escape. We were having a cigarette and we were having one of those talks and you go, well, listen, I mean, I got to talk to my shrink about this. And I said, you got a shrink? And he goes, Jason goes, 
yeah, you, you don't have a shrink? And I was like, no, I don't have a fucking shrink. I'm not mad. And he goes, dude, this is New York. You need to get a fucking shrink. And I'm like, I don't need a fucking shrink. I'm not crazy. He, I don't need a shrink. Anyway, gonna... <laughs> ah! so, you know, I'm going out, getting blinded. Anyway, he goes, Jason's like, you need to get a shrink. So I was like, fine. I, so I call this, I don't know how I got it, but anyway, get this guy called. And anyway, so this guy, I go and see this guy and he says, do you want to, he spoke like this. He says, do you want to lie down on the sofa? I said, like, I don't want to lie down. On the and he goes, well, what seems to be the problem? I said, I don't have a fucking problem. My friend who's from New York said that I need a shrink because I live in New York now. Anyway, so this would go on about two months into this, uh, two months into this, I pick up a vanity fair and there's a story about a woman who washed up in pieces, being cut up in pieces in a suitcase and she washes up on Long Island and she'd been having an affair with <laughs> shrink. Do you remember this? I don't remember this at oh all. Oh my God. No. So anyway, I go in the next oh Wednesday God. and I go and sit down. He goes, would you like to lie down? I said, no, I would not like to sit down. Would you like to tell me about whatever her name was? He washed up on Long Island in a suitcase. Oh my God. Pieces? Are you anyway, serious? Yeah. Anyway, that was just uh, uh, well, an aside. We're going to definitely have to, we're going to definitely have to bleep that name. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh my God! I don't, your your memory is shockingly good, Henry. Or or I have had adult onset on time Alzheimer's for thirty years, probably more God. the latter. Anyway, so, uh, I want to wrap this up with you guys and sort of take it back to the beginning. I know one of the things you were really interested in getting to talk about, Jason, was sort of um, creative risk where you were in your life at the time that you're at now as a you know successful mm -hmm. person in the media production mm -hmm. you have the resources to figure out how to make whatever creative project you want but at the time that you were back in 1998 you're still a pretty young guy you literally quit uh a full-time mm -hmm. job in the media health insurance everything uh to yeah. take this big risk is uh, are you the same person today that you were then and how are you different? Yes. The reason I wanted to do this was in part in January and February, I was realizing that, yes, I, I have a production company. Um, we are so fortunate to have so much work and for people to have been employed throughout these difficult last three years of the pandemic. And people have been able to thrive and succeed when other people are having such a difficult time because of the, the work that we're fortunate enough to have. And I do, my job now is not to be making the stuff that my company makes all the time because my job is sort of managing the day-to-day -day business aspects of the company and really spending a lot more of my time thinking like, well, what, I, I want a project I can sort of just work on. But I find now it's harder to just have that blind enthusiasm to start something because I'm so much more aware, I guess, of all the legal things, all the this, all the that. Can I get the estate? Who else is working? Will I get the chance to direct? Can I do this? Like, I was in a space where I was really talking myself out of, and also to be fair, just having some other things kind of properly fall apart, which is one thing I talk about a lot when I talk to people about working in this business, which is, Sometimes there's things you really, really want to do, but there are reasons that you shouldn't do them that manifest. And it's and you have to walk away from those things, even though you really want to do it. And even though it might be really good for you to do it in some way, but you're inviting into your life a certain thing that isn't going to be good for you or the other person. And I've had that happen recently where something I really, really wanted to do um, 
but it ultimately wasn't right. And I, and I had to walk away from it. And I have a bunch of these other things that I'm kind of thinking about doing. Um, and it brought to mind like, God, you know, in 1996, 1997, it seems so insane now to quit a job to do something like what we did. And I should add that I didn't work for a year and a half when we were finished. You know, I thought we just, this is it. We've made it. We're documentary filmmakers. All we have to do now is decide what to do next. Well, guess what? It doesn't work that way. No one's coming knocking on your door. No one's calling you on the phone. Um, it doesn't work that way. And I didn't work for a year and a half after what at the time was the greatest career moment I had had in my life, a year and a half. Okay. And when I did work, I was temping, I was temping and it took me months and months and months to get an opportunity to go to work, which I got through Hillary Spiegelman, another Hampshire college friend. Yeah. Of ours. And this is after you've had a document a, a, a documentary mm -hmm. film on national television of your own creation, yes. production, everything. Yep. Not one call. I think in my mind, I thought I'm just going to sit back, wait for the phone to ring at 508 East 12th street. And, uh, Henry and I will just do the Sammy Davis thing, maybe the Al Jolson thing. Like we're going to have our pick of whatever we want to uh -huh. do. And, you know, let's take a little time to enjoy it, take a victory lap, but eventually we're going to get back to mm -hmm. work. And it's just, that's not the way the business works. Uh, what you know? about you, Henry? Now you are 50 something years old. You have your, yeah. you're a business person in a completely different, well, a pretty different field. Right. And you've got your, you've got uh kids and you've got uh four, four boys. I got four boys. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I run a farm. Right. So I couldn't be more different. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, you know, this sort of the same question, you know, when you're, you know, you've had this opportunity the last hour and a half to kind of walk through all these memories. Do you feel mm -hmm. like you're the same risk taking uh, person now that you were when you were uh, 29 or 30 years old? Yes, definitely. Definitely. And um, I think what that gave me and actually what Hampshire College gave me, I have to say, is the ability to step outside the box, to have that kind of passion and that vision and that drive. I think Jason and I um, have uh, an incredible work ethic, actually. I think, you know, we were not afraid to put in the time and the work um, to get that done. And, you know, and it was it was freaking hard. It was hard and it was crazy. And, um, you know, even now at the age of 54, I mean, running a farm, living in England, which seems to be like a third world country, uh, you know, as it is, <laughs> and running a farm in a third world country um, has its challenges. But, you know, I'm, I'm taking risks every day. Um, I'm working probably, yeah, 80, 80 hours a, a week. Um, and, and I love it and I enjoy it because I'm passionate about it, you know. And, um, you know, just to go to Jason's point, and I think it's a really good point to make for any up and coming documentary filmmakers, I don't know whether we got lucky or all the stars aligned or it was just a bit of everything. But, you know, the Sammy Davis Jr. thing, which was a shoe. I went to stay with Quincy Jones. I went to stay with Quincy Jones. I had Altavis. We had everyone, didn't we, Jason? Mm -hmm. On that, yep. We had the lineup. The st I mean, you, we had everybody and we couldn't get it made. <laughs> you know, and, and we I had think done that, the Bobby Darren one already. I, but it, you know, it, it's just I, there's no rhyme or reason. And, no. Um, <clears throat> You know, so uh, 
but yeah, I think that um, risk is a really important uh, thing to, to take. And I do worry about my children in this current climate that they're living in that, you know, there's a lot of cotton wool padding and stuff and, and people are risk adverse. And um, as Jason knows, I've, I've never been risk adverse for, for better <laughs> and for worse. <laughs> you know, Rick, I think also what what even just even just the prospect of doing this episode, uh, it made me commit to uh, something very simple. And maybe this is useful for people, too, which is I am going to pursue some of these personal documentary projects, whether they're podcast or documentary based. And the way that I'm going to do that is not try to put the whole thing together right now. The way I'm going to do it this time is I have a few things that sort of I was interested in, made some reach out calls that, you know, were receptive. And I'm just going to go to B&H, the, the New York, you know, photo video emporium. And I've had my post-production supervisor was so kind to give me a really detailed synopsis of sort of the cameras now, the audio recorders right now are so different from when we were doing this. I said to him, I just want something I can do myself. I don't want to have a whole crew. I don't want to, I want to like be able to do interviews with a camera that's four, six or 8K so that I can lock the shot down, minimal lighting if to none. And I want to record audio at a bit rate that's high enough where I don't even have to worry about the levels. And I just want to be able to do it simply around my life, my busy life and my busy work life. And can I do that? Uh, is the technology there to do that good enough for feature film or broadcast quality? And the answer is yes. And it's at a price point nowadays that is so accessible. So that's what I'm going to do. And I don't know if any of those will turn into anything, but my way now is not to necessarily try to launch a whole production, but to say, let me just reach out and say, can I grab these interviews about this person's life? Cause I'm interested. And maybe if I get enough of them, I can make a sizzle reel and maybe with the sizzle reel or proof of concept tape, someone will pick it up and maybe you get the finishing funds. Or maybe I just, that's just a hobby of mine is piecing these things together over a number of years. Um, and I'm making the commitment to do that really because we, decided to do this episode and kind of put me back in that headspace of like, yeah, you lose that. I think when you start to run a business in this business and there's, it's almost, you know, it's so hard to get any TV projects going at all ever. It takes so much time and effort. We have shows on the air now that I stayed with for five years. Okay. Which is an eternity. That's, that's like two to three cycles of the executives that you're dealing with at a given network. They don't stick around for five years. So I think the tenacity that, and, and by the way, Henry will still email me every once in a while with a great idea for a documentary film that <laughs> ignites the spark all over again. He did it very recently where he's like, do you happen to know that there's a recording studio very near where I live in England, where all of these amazing acts recorded mm -hmm. and, and that's enough. And then I start Googling and I'm like, holy shit. Like I love recording studio documentaries. I watch all of them that mm -hmm. there are, it's a genre and he will, he will email me something like this and it activates it. And who knows, you know, some of those things might take fruition. So I think that's the, that's the spark that 2023 and beyond, I want to listen to that a little bit more and just almost differently than we did then, which sounds like we did a lot of work. And I remember when Henry was saying that, yes, we had work ethic, but not at the same time. I distinctly remember being at the bar and being like, Henry, I don't want to fucking do Jason. He would just say to me, Jason, he would look at me and he meant like, we need to do this now. 
we need to do this work right now. Like, oh, fuck. All right. And then there'd be another time where he'd be like, oh, come on. I'd be like, no, no, Henry. Like, so having two of us, it, it, yeah. we didn't have to both have the same work, that, work ethic at the same time. One of us could <laughs> browbeat the other one into doing the work that was required. That's probably the only, only possible way it got done. And we should do another episode down the road, Henry, where we talk about some of our subsequent hilariously failed attempts to launch projects such as the time uh, a very famous news journalists production company executive threw the uh, pitch packet at my face in the boardroom because of some bullshit I was trying to sell as work that wasn't. There's a lot of other stories, Rick, that we can get into, but I just want to close with this. The most genius thing that happened at the end of the Bobby Darren process was we had a wrap party at the El Coyote restaurant, which for people know New York City is very famously on the ground floor of the Chelsea Hotel. And it's a it's just a hilarious old school place. Now it's hipsterized again. It's all new. But at the time, it was a dark red velvety kind of Mexican restaurant. And um, <clears throat> Bob and Bill threw us a rap party, which was this sort of desultory 10 or 12 MPI regulars gathered to celebrate the end of the, pro the production process. And by this point, relations were, were frayed between Bob and ourselves. Um, I would go on to spend many more months than I care to admit, continuing to try to make this thing work. Henry was done and out. <clears throat> Henry gets up at the party, like bangs a knife on a glass, gets everyone's attention and does something that only British people can do in America, which is he proceeds to insult Bob Marty to his face in front of the entire staff, but not by being insulting. He, he says the exact opposite of what he means, which British people have developed as an art form. <clears throat> so when he stands up and says, I just want to say, Bob, and he's looking at Bob in the eyes. Now, Bob is not a person who liked direct eye contact. Like that freaked him out. That, that level of intimacy freaked him out. He's staring at Bob and it slowly dawns on me over the first few minutes of this speech, what Henry's doing, which is he's saying the opposite of everything. So he's saying, Bob, I've learned so much from you. I'm so grateful for the experience of working with you and what I've learned. And, and he's saying it in a way where everyone in the room knows what he means is, I learned what not to do. I learned how not to treat people. I learned how not to go about this. And, he, and it goes on and on and on. It went on so brilliantly. And again, not a negative word was said. I swear to you, this is the truth on my child's life. It reached a crescendo. Bob literally got up and ran out of the restaurant and did not return. I swear to you. Do you remember that, Henry? He ran out. He got up from the table and ran. Henry just destroyed him <laughs> with this kindness, uh, which, oh my God, I've never seen anything like that to this day. It was such yes. a deserved and fitting end to, yes. the, to the process. So that was, yeah, yeah, I, that was quite a, quite a moment. And um, oh God, that was brilliant. Yeah, well, was you know, RIP Bob Marty, I don't know if he's still alive, but wherever oh, he's still you are, around. Bob. He's still there, Bob. Yeah, maybe he'll, maybe he'll hear this. Um, he's still in the business. He's not in the business anymore, but he, um, he too, Henry, interestingly, hmm? guess what? He lives on a farm too. Oh my God. <laughs> you guys do the same thing now. So maybe a little more similarity there than we'd like to admit. I don't know. Maybe I'll look him up next time I'm in wherever he is. Look up, yeah. You guys can trade like seed reports or something, you know? Jason, thank right, you guys. for being Listen. an excellent guest on your own podcast. Thank you. I, this is so much better than hosting it.
And Henry, I want to thank you for always being hilarious, brilliant, and uh, for being a guest for being a guest on somebody else's podcast too. Well, Rick, thank you so much for the great questions and hosting. And it was great to see you after all these years, mm-hmm. looking younger than ever. Sure. And whatever you're doing, keep doing it, man. All right. You know? Yeah. Well, thank you guys. And thank, thank you guys. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. We'll talk Thanks, soon. Bye bye. All right, guys. <laughs>